This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. To receive a free copy of Bob Buford's classic book, Halftime, Moving from Success to Significance, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. You know, sometimes you go in and you might be talking to CEO and, you know, and I've heard the comment, you know, oh, I, you know, I really don't like the kind of the, the behavior and the culture in the, you know, down through the business. I'm not happy the way that's going. And I would always say, if you don't like that, the first place you look is in the mirror um, because it's coming from here. It's coming from the top. So you may not like that comment. And <clears throat> sometimes it's not a very, you know, popular comment to make, but I said, that is absolutely the truth. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, entrepreneur, coach, and consultant, John Murphy. My partner, John Ramstead, and I had a chance to chat with John recently, and here's how we got that conversation started. Today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have John Murphy calling in from France, and John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed, John. It's great to be here. Now, John, uh, I, I love your background. You 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 went you came all the way up through the the corporate ladder. You started out in sales, just like I did. You became a CEO of a very large European uh, insurance company, and then uh, you took a turn and got into entrepreneurship. And it was an interesting transition for you. And I know you work with leaders and CEOs and executives around the world on leadership, building high performance teams. And uh, all those areas are just passions of, of Steve and I also. So uh, I'd love to get started and have you just share a little bit, though, about your journey um, so people can get to know you. Yeah, well, I suppose, uh, you know, it, to a large extent, it was a very kind of classical, you know, get a job, uh, get into uh, <laughs> to earn a job to pay some to pay the bills, you know, get married, kids come along, you've got mortgages and all of that sort of thing. And, and you know, I started in the insurance industry. My, my background has, has always been in, in sales. And, you know, I did the very traditional route in terms of, as you said, I became a salesman and I was, you know, pretty good at being a salesperson. And then, you know, I got the job to be to become a manager. Which, in many ways, when you look back in it, the the, the 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 normal thing is that they recruit their their best salespeople and put them in as managers. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you get a good manager. But anyway, um, that I learned later on. But you know, I got into managing, and I, I I enjoyed managing people. I really did like it, and then progressed and became, you know, took over the marketing side. Then I became a sales and marketing director, and ultimately ended up as uh, the CEO uh, of a financial services company. And really, you know, I. I mean, I enjoyed a corporate life was was very good to me. I, I hope I was good to it, but it certainly was very good to me and I and I enjoyed it. But I, I had always said right through that time, which was kind of an easy thing to say to a large extent, but I'd always said that the day I, I, start, I started to repeat myself, I'd leave. And, you know, and that's an easy thing to say when you're kind of growing a business and developing a business and building new businesses and doing all that sort of thing. But suddenly I actually found, well, you know, in fact, I am beginning to repeat myself. And last year looks a bit like this year and this year, you know, looking forward, I can see next year being a bit like this one. So it was really a case of, you know, did I have the courage of my convictions or was it just a nice one liner uh, that I had? And I really felt that if I didn't leave then 
that, you know, I was going to end up with the proverbial, you know, golden handcuffs and not be able to leave. And uh, I also thought, you know, I mean, and, you know, I, something my eldest brother kind of taught me is in a very different industry. But he always said, you know, if you're going to leave somewhere, leave when you're at the top. Um, and, and, you know, the career was going well. So I made the decision to leave and and start my own business. And to be honest, I made the decision to leave before I was clear of what I was going to do. But in the process, but I because I think there were there were two separate decisions really. Uh, one was like I kind of knew in my own heart and soul that I had given all I could give to the corporate world, and I probably had got all I was going to get from the corporate world, and there was time for me to move on and do something else. And through a process of kind of figuring out, okay, well, if I made that decision, but what am I going to do next? I really made the decision to kind of say, okay, when I looked at the corporate job that I had and the career that I had, what part of it did I really enjoy doing most? And the bit that I enjoyed doing most was putting a team together and I and coaching that team both individually and collectively to really be high performers. And I just loved that part of the job and I just found it fascinating uh, to do it, you know, and you know, I learned by mistakes. And I just learned that, you know, that the mix of getting a team to work effectively together is not about hiring a bunch of superstars. Yes, you need quality people and of course you do. But, you know, you've also got to get the blend right and the mix right and the character right and the personalities. Now, not that they're all the same, because that doesn't work either, but you've just got to get the blend of all of those right. And then if you get them walking behind a vision that you create and that they become part of, then you've got a great chance of success. So that was really my journey to kind of leave corporate world and, and start uh, my own journey. That was, that was uh, going on for 12 years ago now. Well, you know, I think you've described, John, a lot of people listening to this podcast, you know, they're somewhere in their career where they really feel like they've plateaued that, you know, this year is the same as last year and the same as last year. And they're really struggling with, you know, what is next? What should I really be doing with my life that would be impactful and fulfilling? And, you know, as you made that transition from CEO uh, at that company out into doing something on your own what was some of the biggest challenges there for you well you know it's 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 a good question it's an interesting question because one of the things that i was very conscious of uh, was actually a friend of mine uh, said it to me at the time a very good friend of mine uh, who in fact is was and still is a a management consultant and he said you know john he said the world needs another consultant like a hole in the head Right. And, <laughs> and to, a large extent, <laughs> to a large extent, that's so true. But he said, you know, there's always room for a good one. And uh, and I was very conscious of that. And I didn't want to be some other another, you know, senior executive who's left corporate life and now becomes the, the consultant. And I thought that I really needed to. Uh, there are two things that were really important to me. One was that I was. Uh, very clear about specifically the area that I was going to work on because I've been, you know, as you have too, you know, been on the receiving end where you have people coming in, you know, in the corp when you're sitting behind the corporate desk and people are coming in and they're pitching you and they'd come in and they say, oh, you know, I'm good at, you know, sales consultancy and sales management consultancy and process and time management and leadership. And you kind of, in your own head, you kind of go, now, hold on a second. You can't be expert at all of those things. You know, you, you just can't. What are you really, really good at? And then I might hire you for what you're 
really, really good at. But I don't buy it that you're going to be expert right across the range. And that was something else that really stuck in my head, that I needed to be very specific. So I, I focused on just the air. What I do is that I coach teams and I coach senior executives, full stop. I don't train people, I, any of that. But that's what I do and that's the focus. And the second thing that I was very uh, conscious of was that, you know, my you know, my experience, my corporate experience had been in financial services and I really didn't want to get pigeonholed into financial services. And that kind of would have been the easy way uh, of, of going about it because it's your natural network, it's where you're known, it's where you've got a reputation. But I really wanted to break out from that. So I made a real point of focusing on non-financial services industries to prove the point to myself and to everybody else that what I had and the skills and the experience that I had were absolutely transferable from, from one industry to another. So mm. that would have been a fairly significant uh, struggle, but I was so determined to do it. Um, and I really, really, I mean, the, the initial thing, and it goes back to, you know, I suppose my, my training as a salesperson is that, you know, the old principle, do enough calls, do plenty of calls, talk to loads of people. And I just, you know, I was going out in the early days, obviously, you know, you didn't have any business to deliver, but I was going out and I was doing, you know, six or seven appointments every day. I would talk to, you know, very clear about the market I was after, the level I was after, what I want to talk about, but I just got in and spoke and, you know, and that just, that just paid dividends. So that would have been, you know, that would have been a, a big challenge for me to actually really break out from that one, the, the kind of singularity of message, and secondly, kind of breaking out of the industry that I would have been best known in. And I suppose the other one was the kind of the, the other part that was a challenge was kind of finding your voice. And what I mean by that is kind of what what your story is, you know, what it is you do. And people say, well, you know, what are you doing now? And to kind of say, Oh, I'm a consultant. I mean, that just you know, people get glassy-eyed when you when you do that, and the shutters come yeah, down. Yeah, they sure do. You know, so it was kind of said, well, I can't. I just, and I couldn't. I I tried to try to figure it out for a while, and I couldn't quite get the words right and the language right. But I knew I had to find a, a, another way, and uh, yeah, so I mean that. They were the big challenges, I think. I mean, it, to be honest, I was very fortunate. I very quickly got some, you know, I got some nice accounts, started doing business outside of financial services, which then enabled me to dip back into the network that I had. But it just rounded it off. And, and you know, but again, the traditional challenges of, you know, income, revenue, all of those things that, that you have to do because, you know, at the end of the day, you got to make a profit. You know, as you were making that transition and really kind of finding this new identity, um, you know, what was there a point when you knew that this transition was going to work for you? Because there's so many people. The reason I asked that, John, there's so many people that are maybe maybe making some of these low cost probes, is what I call them, into some other areas. They're really trying to find what that unique value that they bring to the market, and you know, they're just kind of struggling with that identity, believing that they can, you know, move out of this area that's been their comfort zone for a very long period of time. And, and apply that into a new area that, you know, can be rewarding, support their family in all these areas. And um, I, I, I'm just wondering if you can go, you know, rewind the clock and say, hey, you know, there was one point when I really uh, saw that this was coming together. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that, you know, 
did did I have any doubts? To say I had no doubts would I be lying? To be perfectly honest with you, of course there were moments because you know you're 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 walking out from a you know a, a top executive position, and one of the things you're well paid, you're well looked after, you don't have to worry about you know where's you know paying the bills the next month. You've got a, a a car, you've got an expense account, you've got all the trappings that go with it, and you do have other people saying, I know which they did, said to me, "Are you out?" of your mind are you insane you know you've got a good track record the business is flying it's growing what in god's name are you doing and of course there were moments where you're kind of saying god I'm, i wonder am i really doing the right thing or is this just a flight of fancy or a, a midlife crisis or whatever whatever it might be so there were moments where where you kind of kind of wondering and also you you've got to accept that you know up at this at this stage it was still a good idea but i hadn't actually delivered anything to anybody. So still, I was pretty confident that I could do it, but I hadn't actually done it. And it really was when I started to work with the first team, the first team that I, I got as a contract, and you began to see the transformation in the team. And and it's not that I was transforming the team, but that the work was was actually giving them the platform, the process and the structure to really become a more effective team. And that to me was a real aha moment. I said, I, this just works. I thought it would work. I really believed it would work. But now I've actually seen it work and I've seen it work in front of my eyes. Uh, and that's really what gave me the confidence to go on because I could now not just talk about the theory of it, but I could talk about, listen, this is really transformational. It will make a difference. It can you know, really impact the team, the, the productivity, the bottom line, the whole lot. And this can just change relationships in, in within a team. So that to me was probably a couple of months into the first contract. That really was what nailed it for me. And, and I also... You know, and I don't want this to sound kind of strange, but I just knew that I was doing what I should be doing. And I knew that this was the right work for me. Does that make sense to you? Oh, it makes total sense because, you know, as I got out into, you know, doing something similar uh, as a, an executive coach using my experience, 25 years in business and um, started working with companies and saw those teams we were talking before we started recording you know, there's a point where a team starts to come together and you get unity in that team and the leadership yeah. and everything is working together. You can always go back. That is the inflection point when everything good starts to happen in that company, any way that you want to measure it from employee engagement, turnover, profits. Um, so I would love to just dive in and just have a conversation between you and I, John, about, you know, people listening. How do you really build an effective team. There's a lot of people out there right now in a leadership role where the team clearly is not a high performing team or there's some significant amount of dysfunction. So, you know, where, where do you start when you, when you walk into a client? Well, the one, the one thing that, the one thing that I'd always say to, to, to client, I mean, and um, you and I have got plenty of experience with kind of going into companies and, you know, sometimes you go in and you might be talking to CEO and, you know, and I've heard the comment, you know, oh, I, you know, I really don't like the kind of the, the behavior and the culture in the, you know, down through the business. I'm not happy the way that's going. And I would always say, if you don't like that, the first place you look is in the mirror um, because it's coming from here. It's coming from the top. So you may not like that comment. And <clears throat> sometimes it's not a very, you know, popular comment to make. But I said, that is absolutely the truth. 
you've got to start there. And with any team, the one thing that you've got to do, and this is not consultant speak, but you've got to create the vision of, you know, where where is this business going? What do we want this business to look like in two, three, five years? Whatever the time horizon that you, you, you decide. And I'd make it tend to make it shorter rather than longer because you know, my experience of doing 10-year plans is that you kind of, you know, did great gung-ho and kind of one year, second year, and then it just began to repeat itself a little bit after that because I think the the market and the world changes so much. So, you know, if you want to go, what do I actually want to build? What am I trying to create? What do I want this to look like? And it's not just in terms of, you know, revenue and profit and things like that, but, you know, what do I want it to mean to people? What do I want the customers to say? Where does it add value in their lives, their businesses? You know, what does the staff, what are they going to say? What are the shareholders, stakeholders, all the different stakeholders? And really to have that conversation, because the reason that the vision is so important is not so that you can, you know, put a plaque up in your reception in your building. In fact, I'm quite cynical when I see that. Uh, but anyway, that's probably a bit of an exaggeration or a generalization. But well, I don't think general, you need to be cynical. I don't think you need to be cynical because, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. It's so interesting. I just finished doing a, a 360 um, on a company I work with, very large company. And, you know, these plaques on their values, their mission, their vision are all over this company as you walk in through the foyer. And as I'm doing the 360s and interviewing people on this team, which was uh, a fairly dysfunctional team, and I asked people, what, what are the values of the company? You know, how would you describe the culture? What's their mission? Every single person of the 12 people I interviewed gave me a completely different answer. Absolutely. And I've been there. Wow. And it, so it doesn't matter if you've gone through the exercise and you have those slogans on the wall or uh, you even gave them as a handout. The, the, question, the real question is, do, do those values, do those vision, does that connect with the individuals on the team? And does it live in how you work and communicate and do business every day at that, you know, in what you're doing? Absolutely, because I mean, I was just working with a a team last week uh, here in Europe, and uh, you know, one of, we're talking about we're talking about a vision, and I I had interviewed uh, six of their senior people, and I asked them what what is the vision, and I got six different answers, and um, saying guys, you know, why is it important to have a vision and to have a vision and to have an agreed vision. And the reason is, is, is that the vision has got to be your, your guiding star, your, your, your north star, call it whatever you like, because the vision gives you the context for your decision making. You know, so do I go and, you know, buy that piece of equipment or do we invest the money in something else over here? Then you ask, well, you know, which one is going to get us closer to the vision? And that actually helps the decision making. Because otherwise, what tends to happen is that organizations start off to be one thing and they veer a little bit off, you know, after year two or three. And four or five years down the road, they find they've actually created a completely different business to what they set out to. And they never intended that to happen, but it just drifted. And if you don't have a clear vision and it doesn't become your guiding light, you know, and again, what you're talking there about, about values you know, I'm, I'm, as people say to me, I'm not, I say to people, I'm not interested in particularly in the word because you can have a word like integrity, which is a great word and we'd all buy into it. But what does it mean in this organization? You know, what do we actually mean by that? And what's the behavior that we need to see and witness across the organization to be sure that we're living our values? So it's the meaning rather than just the wordsmithing. 
And I think you've just got to get really behind it. So the first place I would go with any team is, listen, let's actually create this vision. So we've got, we all know, you know, what the vision is and where we're going. Then the question is, does everybody want to go on that journey? And if people don't want to go on that journey, then that's another decision that you make. But assuming that they are going to go on that journey, then it's really important for them to understand that not only have they got functional responsibility, where typically it has somebody, somebody's responsible for sales, somebody for customer service, somebody IT, finance, et cetera, et cetera, depending on your organization. So they have functional responsibility, but they also have got a responsibility as the leadership team. So how are they going to work together and what's the behavior that they're all signing up to in order to achieve that vision? And then you determine what is the culture. And when you talk about culture, again, that's not kind of a, a, a vague concept or something that you just put fancy words to. Culture to me is, you know, if I want to know what the culture is of any organization, I'll just go in and I listen to the conversation, how people talk, how they speak to each other. You know, does the... Does the real conversation happen at the meeting or does it happen at the proverbial water cooler? That tells you the culture. I don't care what it says in the manual. That actually is the culture, what's, what's happening there on the ground. So it's actually understanding, people understanding that how they behave and their, their, what they're buying into, which is very much on the right side of the brain as opposed to the left side of the brain, is that's what actually is going to differentiate them in the marketplace. And then, of course, you've got to get into your plans and strategies and all of that. But if you don't get that part right first, and so many others start, let's do some plans, let's kind of work out what we're going to do and all this sort of stuff, but they don't have a context for it. And that's where you get real dysfunctionality because then when you only do this kind of operational planning, then the only bit that I'm concerned about is my silo because that's the way it's built. And that, to me, is where organizations really start to fall down. Relationships get fractured. The politics become, you know, obscene and upsetting and start to actually really, really become a cancer in the organization. So they're the places that I start, John. Well, it's like uh, I know you and I are both uh, fans of Patrick Lencioni. Yeah. And in his book, The Advantage, he, he makes a pretty bold statement that organizational health is going to become the most competitive advantage that any company can have. And, and I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah, and, and the other one that I love actually from him in the same book where he talks about organizations that are smart and healthy and smart being they're OK, that we're good at the technology, the marketing, the process and all of that, the finance and all of that sort of stuff. And the healthy were about culture, about people, about development and growth, uh, personal growth. And I, I, I always remember one line that he had and he said that, you know, healthy organizations tend to get smart over the longer term. Smart organizations don't necessarily get healthy. That's true. Getting healthy is intentional. You know, like getting back to what you said about values, you know, a lot of people have a list of words, but nobody knows how to, um, let's say integrity, right? How do I, you know, do that every day? Is that really a guiding value to what I do? And I get all my clients to take their top values and actually put that into an action statement, you know, yeah. s such as, you know, we always do the right thing. You know, yeah. in, in, now you have a, a, guide po a guidepost. Is that is this the right thing to do? Or maybe it's, you know, we want to respect and honor our teammates. Well, what does that really look like? Yeah. Um, one of the companies, what they came up with is that we, we always give feedback with the spirit of lifting each other up. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, 
when they're when they're having a conversation, some of these are difficult conversations, but they always want to go in with that humble spirit because they want to make each other better. And and so it's very important though uh, for the leader not only to know those values and know that vision, but over communicate it. They should be sharing this in every meeting that they're having, and especially. And I'd love your take on this in Europe, but here in, in the U.S., right now, millennials are 25% of the workforce. Yeah. They're going to be 75% of the workforce in just the next 10 years. And if they don't feel connected uh, to doing meaningful work, uh, that they're contributing to the team, and that uh, the work that they're doing has meaning and value, uh, that you know they're connected to that every single day, they're going to start checking out very quickly. Uh, the average millennial only stays at a company right now for less than two years. Guys, our generation at a company, their average tenure is five to seven years. So it, it really creates a, actually, in my opinion, a huge opportunity for leadership for the leaders that you and I are working with right now. Yeah. And it's a, it's a big issue. Uh, it's a big issue for organizations where you have that sort of turnover uh, at you know, kind of a, a middle and 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 a senior level, and it does break continuity. So you know, and you've got to get the right mix because it's not that you want to. I mean, the, the people with the jobs for forty years doesn't exist any longer. But there has to be some sort of engagement. And you know, we all want to. We all want to walk behind some cause. Um, and in the absence of, of you know, kind of being able to buy into a vision uh, that within the organisation you'll buy into something else. Uh, which is not part of the organization, and the organization loses out. And it is always interesting when you when you work with organizations that get that part of it right, the whole genesis of the work that you're doing with a company just completely changes. And, you know, it's the speed of getting things done, getting out in the marketplace, getting the message out, the pace in the organization is almost is always far higher. Whereas the organizations that don't have an, have a clear understanding of their values, you know, they're getting each other's way. They don't cooperate as well. They don't communicate as well. And all of those things are getting in the way of, of getting the job done and building profitable enterprises. Well, let's say somebody out there, they're, they're listening to this. They've been there. They go and they, they really work on this. Uh, they, they get some, you know, much more clarity of their vision. They understand their values. They really understand maybe their personal why, you know, the, why the business exists. Um, what are some of the next steps then once I have that in place to really create these high performing healthy teams? Well, I, I think that when you're looking at uh, when you're looking at teams, you've got to be really clear about the the type of people that you want in the team. So when you're going and selecting the team, it's actually looking at um, you know a different mix of people because you know. You know, not to have everybody the same as you, because that's a that's can be a recipe for disaster because you'll all agree with each other. So there's got to be some kind of contrarian views, different views, mix of skills, mix of talents, mix of outlooks and just getting that blend together. But at the foundation of it, you do have to build a level of trust. That, and when I talk about trust, I'm not talking about trust that you won't run away with the money. I'm talking about trust that I can be in that team and I can put my hand up and say, listen, I'm struggling or I don't know the answer or, you know, I need some help or can somebody give me a dig out uh, or I'm unsure. And I can say, make those sort of comments and uh, reaching out for help 
without feeling, God, I'm going to get stabbed in the back here. This is really going to come back and haunt me. But it is the ability to have that level of trust that everybody is there for each other. And you really... You've really got to, got to work and focus on building the trust uh, am, uh, amongst the team so that people can actually cooperate with, you, with each other. And if there isn't that trust, then people will stay in their silos and just protect uh, their own patch. After that, it's been really clear about the, you know, the accountability. And I think people have got to understand that, you know, that while we're building the trust and building relationships, that doesn't make it a soft area to work in. There's got to be accountability and there's got to be an, an expectation that when I say I will deliver whatever it might be by Friday week, it'll happen and that I can be relied upon. Because what you see, it tends to happen is that, you know, I won't deliver it, but John, you're not going to challenge me because there's kind of an un, unspoken rule. We never mentioned it or actually articulated it, but then I won't challenge you when you're a bit late. And then what you get is you can start get get drift. And that just permeates down through the entire organization. So you've got to make sure that you're getting the behavior at that top team that is really the behavior you want to get down through the organization. That, yes, you can have, you know, really strong accountability, which may cause a little bit of, of conflict at times. And conflict is healthy. It's the same way that we all need a little bit of stress in our lives. Not, not you know, Stress is not universally bad for us. So there is that kind of balance between getting the relationship right, but also getting the accountability right. And people are really clear about the accountability. And then people just get on with, with, with doing the job. And yes, there'll be things that go wrong. But where you've got that openness and trust and you've got those relationships right between the people, then they will get together and they'll sort them out quickly. Whereas the, if the relationships are fractured, they drag on and drag on and drag on and everybody gets, gets, gets affected by it. The, 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 the team gets affected by it, the business gets affected by it, the customers get affected by it, and it does play out that way. You know, it's, it makes me think back to the, the comment you made earlier on, John, about you know, looking in the mirror. I asked <clears throat> one of my clients at one point, uh, he was very frustrated with some underperforming, a number of underperforming members of his team. But if you looked at the resumes of each of these individuals, you would think that these people should, should be superstars. Yeah. Uh, the question I asked him was, what is it? What leadership have you brought to that situation that has created this outcome? And I think that is important for people to think about, because as the leader, if you want to create unity and you want to be, have accountability in your team, your team has to also be able to hold you accountable. And this gets back to creating that culture of trust and unity and authenticity. And I think a great place to start there is, um, you know, expectations can be a cancer in a team and in an organization. Um, I always have people talk about very specific agreements. So if I'm yeah. talking with you, John, when, you know, when, when are you going to have this done? By when? Do you need any help from me? Do you need any other resources from the team? And I agree to have this to you by, let's say, this Friday, or I have this project done, or this many sales calls, or whatever it happens to be. Because now we have very clear communication, and we can talk about it, because then if I come back to you, and I didn't have it finished, um, and I didn't communicate to you in the interim, but now we can have a very different conversation about what's going to happen next time that happens. So people, people can manage, you can manage people out of a team if they're not the right fit 
by setting agreements, having that clear communication um, and creating that dynamic. But you have to allow your team to have that same conversation with you. And if that is not happening, you cannot expect that from the team that you're you're trying to make some changes to how everybody operates. Yeah, and I and I think that one of the things that I I've and I, I've said this so often, uh, and anybody who knows me is would kind of hear it as a mantra of mine that my own experience is I I have I have got better results uh, through people through coaching them as opposed to managing them. And 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 I would absolutely put my hand to my heart and say that I can I can stand over that statement, because you know I, I remember somebody saying to me many years ago because people use coaching and managing interchangeably, and they are very very different. And uh, you know somebody said to me years ago because I think I would be I had used got a long long time ago I was using the term interchangeably, and uh, he said to me John he said remember remember this he said you manage things and you coach people. And uh, and I thought it was just such a, a simple thing. And it's really, it really helped me to kind of clarify it because, you know, you coach and lead people and that's right-brained. You manage things and that's left-brained. Now, you've got to do both. I'm not saying you do one or the other. You've got to do both. But you've got to remember you do have to do both and not just one. And the easier one to do is the managing uh, because the coaching and the leading one, you, you have got to give much more of yourself to that, to that process. And, and you're right what you say, John, it's only if people actually see you doing that and you're walking the talk with it, that people actually say, actually, this is the way to do it. No, I agree. And I, you know, just to simply, just to make it really simple, I, you know, I see managing as kind of telling, uh, and coaching as, as asking. So, absolutely. So if I've, so if there is a big project I need somebody to do for me, um, and I asked them, how are they going to do it? What is their plan? Instead of just telling them, here's what I would do. Here's, you know, step one, two, three, four, five, and check in with me at these points. If you are asking questions and they are creating it and you're guiding it via questions, at the end of that process, what happens is the person that you're working with on your team has total ownership because they've created the action plan. Now, there might be some times where you have to jump in there and, and uh uh, really get them to look at it from different perspectives because maybe you're seeing that their approach is not going to work. But if you do it by creating self-awareness in them, by mm-hmm. asking those questions where they all of a sudden they're, you're helping develop a whole new skill that they can think critically about what they need to do, what resources they need, what roadblocks are in place, how to get there, and then get to that specific agreement that's very realistic on on the timeline to get there. Now, they're going to replicate that with the other members on their team that they're leading and that they're working with. And if you can create that culture of ownership and uh, and open ideas and communication, all of a sudden, uh, it's something we strive for with our clients. It's called a culture of continuous improvement. Imagine if you had an entire team that wasn't just focused on their job or just making their manager happy. But what if they saw their job as interconnected with every other team, every other business unit that's in there, and how all their success is built on each other, and they're constantly looking at ways not only to do what they're doing better, but to help everybody around them do what they're doing. And all of a sudden, you have a very powerful culture that, you know, that's going to be an advantage for that company that, that is going to make a big difference in, in what they're trying to accomplish. 
Yeah, and that's where you do get the cascade, as you're talking about it there, because then they start dealing with that. That becomes the way of, 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 of managing and leading and coaching people in that organization. So you now have got a culture of coaching, and it's the, the organizations that have the culture of coaching, you know, which is going back to the Patriancioni, where, where you're talking about healthy organizations, and they're the organizations that, that kind of will develop and grow and prosper into the future. So, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you and, and you know I think that you know when you're talking there about you know it's that is your legacy as a leader in an organization and I've always loved I've always loved the Stephen Covey um, line of you know to live to love to learn to leave a legacy and I think in, a, in an organization you know where you have you know really worked hard to create a culture like that that's your legacy and that can live for a long time you know, I love that, that word legacy, um, and I cannot remember where I got this, but uh, a friend of mine who's in leadership, uh, is, I wish I could remember his name right now, but uh, what he said is a legacy is what you leave in people. Now imagine that as everybody on the team is what you've left in them is how to be a better leader, be a better person, be a, a, a better thinker. Uh, you know, just be that person that other people around them want to follow. And if you can leave that in people, the loyalty, the unity that you're going to have in your team is going to be extraordinary. And of course, when, when you look at that from a broader perspective too, John, I mean, if you look at, you know, what's happened over the last number of years, you know, and you look at it within the, the financial world, with all of the, the, the dreadful things that people realize, these were people. The, the, these people who are at the top of those organisations. They were looked upon as leaders. They were looked upon as the pillars of society. And suddenly, you discover these guys were just ripping everybody off, and it was completely to their own benefit. And that's why people get disillusioned and disenchanted because these people that they looked up to suddenly realise they shouldn't have been looking up to these people, and we held them in that esteem. And the same has gone for, you know, in churches where it's happened, the, the same thing, where people who looked up to it and revered, and it was important to them to, to feel that this kind of this admiration and, and, and joy that they got from looking at these leaders. And then to discover that these people are, you know, flawed, to say the least. Uh, and what they say and, and what they did, there was a big gap between what they said publicly and what was happening privately. And that's where people get disenchanted. And it's what happens in organizations. You know, if, if you're saying, you know, your mantra, which is in the in reception area, is to be a certain way, but actually the behavior in the organization is completely different. Well, then, you know, there's no respect. That is so true. Uh, when you act contrary to all these exercises that you've done with your teams and put on the walls, um, and, and that lack of respect is going to show up in how people are, are working day to day. That's probably a big part of the frustrations you're going to have as a leader. So, 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 John, as we wrap up here and people have been hearing this conversation, what, what final thoughts would you like to leave with people? Well, I, I do think that, you know, we all have to, to accept our role as leaders in an organization. And leader doesn't come with a title. And leader is not about the, the, the title that I have in my job, but everybody can take a leadership role. But I would, I would say to anybody who, who is in that kind of senior position in an organization, really, really make sure that the people that you have got around you are clear about the vision and the direction that they're going in. And that they see 
which part of the jigsaw that you know, is theirs, which part do they own that without them putting that piece of, in, in the jigsaw, the jigsaw is not complete. And really get people to buy into that and focus on getting the team aligned to what's really important and also aligned to a behavior that is the behavior you want to see right down through the organization. And if you do that and you focus on a couple of key things, then you've got a really good chance of having a fantastic organization. But it is about getting the people lined up first. If you'd like to learn more information about John, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 107. That's eternalleadership.com slash 107. This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. In 1994, Bob Buford penned the book Halftime moving from success to significance. And in the 22 years since then, more than three quarters of a million copies have been sold. It's touched baby boomers in the 90s, and now it's touching the lives of both Gen Xers who are in that midlife season, asking, is this all there is? As well as baby boomers who are searching for significance in retirement. To get a free copy of the book, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. And after you read the book, if you have any questions, you can have a no-obligation one-hour of halftime coaching. EternalLeadership.com slash halftime. You can't beat getting a free bestseller. Next time on Eternal Leadership, blogger and author of Great Leaders Ask Questions, Bob Teedy. Staff actually love to answer the question, what do you think? Mm. People in general love to answer questions. They feel valued when you ask them, what do you think? And then I begin to understand that when... When you ask a staff member, how do you think this should be done? And they give you an answer and you say, wow, go for it. They own that answer. They own that plan because it was their idea. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Eternal Leadership.